Now the Gospel of John in our Through the Bible book by book. We've come to the fourth of the Gospels. This Gospel of John is one that holds peculiar significance to me for many reasons, but especially because it is written by the one human being closest to our Lord. When you uh, read the Gospel of Matthew, you're reading uh, the record of our Lord as seen through the eyes of a devoted disciple. And Mark and Luke, of course, were dedicated Christians who, who knew and loved Jesus Christ personally, though they learned about him largely through the testimony of others. But John is the one who leaned upon his breast, who was one of that inner circle, Peter, James, and John, with, uh, who went with our Lord through the most intimate circumstances of his ministry and uh, heard perhaps more than any of the others heard. So that when we open this book, I hope we do so with a sense of anticipation that here's one, uh, here's the testimony of our Lord's closest friend. And it's very startling in the light of that, to open this gospel and see how it begins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Sometimes I think we find it, we feel it's difficult to believe that Jesus was God. I know there isn't a Christian who hasn't at one time or another felt the full force of all the arguments that uh, would make him out to be nothing more than man. And uh, there are times when we find it difficult to lay hold of the full intent of those words and to think of this man, Jesus, as God. But if we find it difficult, how much more did his own disciples find this difficult? Have you ever thought of it that way? That they of all men would be least likely to believe that he was God. For they lived with him, and they saw his humanity as none of us ever have or ever will. And they must have been confronted again and again with the question that puzzled them and troubled them. Who is this man? As they said themselves, what manner of man is this who heals, who heals the sick and raises the dead and quiets the wind and changes the water to wine. I've often wondered if perhaps they didn't lie out under the stars with our Lord on a summer's night and by the Sea of Galilee. And uh, I can imagine Peter or John or some of the others waking in the night and raising up on an elbow and looking at the Lord Jesus lying there sleeping beside them and say to themselves, is it true? Can this man be the eternal God? What's the secret of his being, the mystery of his coming? No wonder they were puzzled by him. No wonder they, they wondered about him and constantly conversed among themselves about the mystery of his being. And yet so overwhelming and convincing was the evidence that they saw and heard when they reached the end of the story, that when John begins to write down the recollections of those amazing days, 
he begins on that very note. This is the one who was in the beginning. He was the word who was with God and was before God and was God. Now, that's the theme, of course, of this Gospel of John. In Matthew, we've seen the Lord as the king. In Mark, we saw him as the servant, always busy in ceaseless activity, serving men. In Luke, we saw his per, the perfection of his humanity. God is man intended God, a man, or man rather, as God intended man to be. And now, in the Gospel of John, we come to the presentation of him where we have an entrance into the Holy of Holies. We see the secret of his life. You get the key to the Gospel of John uh, in the next to the last chapter. There are two endings to this little Gospel. It really ends in chapter 20, verse 30, and then John adds a postscript in chap- that we call chapter 21 that has to do with certain things that came about after the re- resurrection. But uh, John had ended his Gospel in verse 30 of chapter 20, In these words, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these, that is these signs, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you might have life in his name. That's the purpose of this book. And you'll notice it's a dual purpose, twofold. John is setting about to show the evidence why any man in any age or any place could fully and wholeheartedly believe that Jesus is first the Christ. Or, to use the Hebrew word, the Messiah. For Christ, of course, is but the Greek translation of that Hebrew form, Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one. And second, that he's the Son of God. Now, a great deal is made of that term, the Son of God, today, as though that were a distinction to be made between God and the Son of God. But no Hebrew mind ever would understand it that way. To the Hebrews, to call someone a son of something was to say he's identified, he's identical with that. Barnabas, you know, was named the son of consolation. That's the meaning of the name, Barnabas, the son of consolation. Why? Well, because he was that kind of a man. He was an encouraging, consoling sort of fellow. And so they nicknamed him the son of consolation. And they meant by that he's the very epitome of consolation. He's the very expression of it. And to the Hebrews, to use this term, the Son of God, was to say, this one is God. And that's why invariably, when our Lord used that term of himself, he was challenged by the unbelieving scribes and the Pharisee, saying, who are you? What do you make yourself out to be? Why, you make yourself, they said, to be equal with God. Of course he did. That's what the title means. Now, that's what John sets about to prove. And it's obvious that in doing so, he employs the principle of selection. He has, he's letting his mind running back, run back over those amazing three and a half years that he was with the Lord. Already Matthew and Mark and Luke had long ago written their gospels. 
And John did not write his until about the close of the of the last century uh, of the uh, uh, of the first century. That is the close of the last decade of the first century, and he wrote it. Uh, as an old man looking back on these events. Now, this, of course, has been used by critics to say we can't depend on the Gospel of John. It's the account of a man who's just trying to recall events of his youth. But remember that these events were on the lips and heart and memory and tongue of the the Apostle John every day after those events took place. He was always talking about these. He talked about nothing else. And he is writing now to, in a sense, tie together the record that Matthew, Mark, and Luke had written. Now, in doing so, he selects certain of these signs, and his object is twofold. First, to show that Jesus was the Messiah, the Old Testament promised deliverer, the one, the anointed one of God. And second, that he was the Son of God. And he does this in order, he says, that if you really believe those two things, you'll find the key to life. That's the Gospel of John. That's why we use it so often with those who are seeking to find the heart of Christian experience and faith. Now notice how he divides this. Jesus is the Christ. That's the first question. And this was the great question on the lips of men in John's day. It was the question that divided the Jews. When any prominent figure came along, they were asking themselves, is this the one? Is this the Christ? There's a deepening sense of expectation that runs all through the Old Testament. The Old Testament, in one way or another, is forever saying someone is coming. Someone is coming. And at the close of the the book of Malachi, you find that... that, uh, question hanging there in the air. Who is this one who is to come? And now, uh, in John's day, the the whole people were stirred by the fact that John the Baptist had appeared and they'd asked him, are you the Christ? And he said, no. But he said, he's coming after me. And when Jesus began to preach all up and down the hills of Judea and Galilee, men were saying everywhere, is this the one? Is this the Messiah? Now, the Lord Jesus himself declared that he was again and again. And he said that he came with the authorized credentials of the Messiah. This is what he meant when he said, as recorded here in in John's Gospel in chapter 10. uh, He said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The sheepfold was the nation Israel. And he says, there's one who is to come an authorized way by the door. If anyone comes in any other way, don't believe him. He's a thief. He's a liar. But he who enters by the door, the authorized opening, you'll know he is the great shepherd. And uh, then he speaks to him. The gatekeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice. And he's referring there to the ministry of John the Baptist, who went as the opener of the door. The one who uh, announced the coming 
the forerunner of the Messiah. But here is what, here he says, he came as the one who was authorized with the proper credentials. Now, what were those credentials? Well, he gives them to us himself in the, the synagogue at Nazareth. You remember in Luke 4, Luke tells us that he stood and uh, read in the synagogue that day the book of the prophet Isaiah. He found the place and he deliberately read to these people these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. What's the name of the Messiah? The Anointed One. The Spirit of the Lord, he says, has come upon me because he's anointed me to do certain things. To preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he stopped in the middle of a sentence, closed the book, and sat down. And then he said to everybody there, This day, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That is, I'm the one. Now take those signs, those marks of the Messiah, and lay them along the seven signs that John picks out of the ministry of our Lord. And you'll see that he does it because these are the signs that prove that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. Let me show them to you in the order in which they appear in John's gospel. The first miracle of our Lord is the changing of water to wine. And that is a miracle that was a parable. It was a symbol. Our Lord was doing a symbolic act at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. He took that which belonged to the realm of, of inanimate being, water, and he changed it into a living substance, wine. He took that that belonged to the realm of death, and he changed it into that which is forever to Israel, an expression of joy and of life. And by this, he is declaring what he, in symbol, what he had said he would come to do, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He didn't come to declare the day of vengeance. He stopped before that. But he came to declare the day of grace, when all God's purpose would be to take man in his brokenness and his emptiness and his death, deadliness, and turn it into life to proclaim the acceptable time of the Lord. Then the next sign is the, is the healing of the nobleman's son. And the central figure in that story is not the son who lies sick at the door of death, but the nobleman who comes to the Lord with his heart crushed with grief, broken-hearted. Because in the agony of his heart, he cries out to Christ and says, Will you come down and heal my son? And the Lord not only heals the son at a distance with a word, but he heals the broken heart of a father, as he'd said he'd do. He came, he was anointed to heal the brokenhearted. And then the third sign is that of the healing of the impotent man in the fifth chapter, who lay at the pool of Bethesda. And remember that man 
was, uh, had, had lain there for 38 years. He had been a captive of this paralyzing disease so that he was unable to get into the pool. And for 38 years, he'd been brought to that pool, hoping to be healed, hoping to be set free. And our Lord came and singled him out of a great crowd of impotent folk, helpless people, and healed him, saying to him, Stand, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. Now why? Because here he was demonstrating his ability to set at liberty those that are oppressed. For 38 years a man had been bound, and he set him free like that. Then the next miracle is the feeding of the 5,000. And in all four of the Gospels, this miracle appears, and linked with it is the double miracle of the walking on the water, the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water. Now, what's the meaning of these signs? Well, you can't read the feeding of the 5,000 without seeing that it's a, a marvelous demonstration of the of the desire of the Lord to meet the deepest need of human heart, the hunger of man for God. He does it with the symbol of bread. He himself had said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then he demonstrated what kind of bread he does need. I, he said, am the bread of life. And taking the bread, he broke it, and with it he fed the five thousand symbolizing how fully he can meet the need of human lives. And then, sending his disciples out into the storm, he comes walking across the waves to them in the midst of the tempest when the waves are high and the ship is about to be overwhelmed and their hearts are, are anguished with fear. And he quiets them and says, Fear not, it is I. And in that double miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking of the water, you see a symbolic representation of the, our Lord's ability to satisfy the need of human hearts and deliver it from its greatest fear, its greatest enemy, which is fear, to feed men and to deliver from fear. And this is, this is good news, isn't it? And this is exactly what the signs of the Messiah was. He came to proclaim good news to the poor. Can you think of anything more that man looks for today? Anything that is greater news to any individual than to tell him there's a place where he can find all the deep need of his, all the clamant cry of his soul satisfied and all the fear of his life removed to proclaim good news to the poor. Then the next miracle is the healing of the blind man, and this hardly needs com comment. Our Lord said he came to give recovering of sight to the blind, and he chose a man who was blind from birth, just as man in his spiritual condition is spiritually blinded from birth, and he healed him. And the last miracle is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. The delivering of the captives, the ones who were held all their life in bondage uh, through fear of death 
under the bondage of Satan, set free and uh, delivered from this captivity. Now, you see how these seven signs beyond question prove that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the expected one. But John goes further than that. And there's a deeper note than that. He says he's not only the Christ, but he's the Son of God. When you see him in his delivering power, you're seeing the promised deliverer, the promised Messiah. Ah, but John says that's not the deepest secret about him. When you see that he is the one able to do all these mighty things and meeting the deepest need of men's lives, look further. And you'll see there's a deeper glory yet. You discover that when you stand in the presence of his humanity and see his love-lit eyes and feel the beating of his human heart and see the compassion of his, of his life poured out in service, you're also standing in the presence of God and you're seeing what God is like. For this one, he says, is the Son of God. Now, he declares that for us. Uh, in the opening words of his gospel, you remember 118, no man has seen God at any time. That's the statement of fact. Ah, but man hungers after God and he needs God and he's always searching for God. And John goes on, the only begotten God. I know our version doesn't read that. It says the only begotten son, but the margin says many versions Read God at this place. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has revealed him. He has exegeted God. He has unfolded what God is like. And then in his gospel, John picks up seven times, seven great words of our Lord that prove that statement. And he bases it all on that great name of God which was revealed to Moses at the burning bush. You recall how Moses saw the bush burning? And when he turned aside to learn its secret, God spoke to him from the bush. And he said to him, I am that I am. That's God's nature. That is, I am exactly what I am. I'm nothing more. I'm nothing less. I'm the eternal I am. And seven times in the Gospel of John, John picks these wor- this little word up and he uses it about our Lord. And in fact, these are words that came from our Lord's own lips. Seven times he himself said these words. And these constitute his proof, the proof that he's deity. Now, does that amaze you? Have you thought that it was his miracles that proved he was God? No, no. They proved that he was man, the Messiah, the promised one. But the, ones, the things that prove he's God are his words. Now listen to them as I run through them quickly. I am the bread of life. That is, I'm the sustainer of life. The one who satisfies life. I am the light of the world, the illuminator of life. I am one, to borrow the phrase from Paul, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, the explainer of things, 
the one who who casts light upon all mysteries and enigmas and riddles and puzzles and solves them. I am the door, Jesus said. That is the opportunity into life, the open way. And whenever you are confronted with some sense of lack or some hunger after something more, these are the words you need to hear. Jesus says, whatever you want, I am the door into it, whatever it may be. I am the good shepherd, that is the guide of life, the only one properly equipped to take an individual and safely steer him through all the the problems and 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 chasms that yawn on every side and to lead us safely through life. We read that psalm, didn't we? The, the shepherd psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Then I am the resurrection and the life. That is the power of life. And have you realized that resurrection power is the only kind that works when nothing else will work in the midst of death. Resurrection power is the kind that doesn't need any outside props. Doesn't need any, any, uh, process to learn. It doesn't need anything to shore it up or bolster it in any way. Doesn't need anything to get it started. Resurrection power is the kind that operates when everything is absolutely dead. And nothing can be done. And then it comes in and begins to act. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That is, I am ultimate reality. I am the real uh, substance behind all things. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And everything that has to do with with reality in those ways, he says, I am. And finally, I am the vine. Without me, you can do nothing. I am the producer of fruitfulness and the source of fellowship and of identity and communion. And thus our Lord took that great revealing name of God and linking it with these simple symbols, he enables us to understand God. This is what God is like. The word, John says, became flesh and dwelt among us, pitched his tent among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory of God become man. Now that's the tremendous theme of this book. There isn't any more, a greater theme in all the universe. The fact that when we stand in the presence of the humanity of Jesus, we suddenly discover that for the first time, we're also standing in the presence of God. This is what God is like. This one who heals and loves and serves and waits and blesses and uh, dies, this is God. That's what John reveals. And the one word then that he leaves with us is that believing, believing that he's the Messiah and that he's God, you might have life 
in his name. Here's the key to life. Who doesn't want to live? Isn't that what we all want, young and old alike? What we're really seeking for is the key to life. We want to be fulfilled. We want all the, the possibilities and potential of our being that we sense down deep inside these unexplained and unexplainable urges that come seething around inside of us. We want to see them fulfilled. We want to see them met. We want those deep yearnings satisfied. We want to be able to express ourselves. We want to be what we were designed and intended to be. Well, then listen. Then listen. That's life. We want to live, we say. And John says, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you might have life in his name. I think this brings us inevitably to two things. First, to worship. How can you stand in the presence of divine mystery like this and not feel your heart drawn out in worship to this one? As we sing in that song, uh, And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That's worship. Like Isaiah who saw the Lord lifted up and saw the temple filled with the smoke of his glory, bowed down and cried out, Woe is me, for I am an unclean man, and I dwell amidst a people of unclean lips. And an angel flew from the altar and took a coal and put it upon his lips and cleansed him. And that brought him to the next thing, which... Uh, to which we too must come in this, if we really see what John is after here. Not only worship, you see, but service. Service. Love so amazing, so divine, says Isaac Watts, demands what? My soul, my life, my all. How can we worship? Unless we are ready to stand and hear the words of the Lord Jesus. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And do you not feel like saying with Isaiah, Lord, here am I. Send me. What could be greater than to stand in union with this one around whom the whole universe gathers, the image of the invisible God, the manifestation of the heart that throbs and beats with love at the center of life and the center of the universe. That's where God, John takes us. So we bow together in prayer. Our Father, we pray as we bow before this blessed one whom this book has been speaking, that the eyes of our understanding may be opened, that we may realize that here is one who stands supreme in the midst of men, who has the right to the loyalty of every heart. And we would join with those thousands and tens of thousands 
in Revelation who cry, Worthy is the Lamb to be praised, to receive honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is this one who was slain, who was dead, and is alive, and who lives forevermore. We thank you for this revelation and pray that our hearts may echo these words, Lord, here am I. No matter what it may be, I'm nothing but a person, nothing but a human being, nothing but a man, a woman, a boy, a girl. But Lord, here am I. Take me. Send me. Use me. In Christ's name. Amen.